Hi, this is Joe Davis, and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. On the 29th of April 2011, Hamza al-Khatib woke up with his family in Giza and walked with them the 12 kilometres northwest of the city of Saida. 13-year-old Hamza was not especially concerned with politics. His real passion was looking after his pet homing pigeons, but he knew that most of the people of his town were headed to the protest, dubbed the Friday of ending the siege on Deira, in response to the deaths of hundreds of civilian protesters at the hands of Mahir al-Assad's forces, so he decided to join them. The shooting began almost as soon as they arrived, and in the chaos his cousin lost sight of him. It was the last time his family would ever see him alive, for he was among the 51 protesters detained by Air Force Intelligence that day, the service headed by Jamil Hassan, a member of Bashar al-Assad's inner circle, infamous for its brutal use of torture. Just less than one month later, on the 24th of May, his body was returned to his family with obvious signs of torture. Lacerations, bruises and burns to his feet, elbows, face and knees that were consistent with the use of electric shock devices and being whipped with cable, both techniques of torture documented by Human Rights Watch. He'd been shot through both arms, whilst his chest showed signs of serious burns. His neck had been broken and his penis had been cut off. Within a week, a video of Hamza's body had been viewed millions of times, and a Facebook page honouring Hamza had amassed 100,000 followers. The brutality of the killing of this innocent 13-year-old boy prompted enormous protests across Syria which spiralled into a conflict that is still ongoing to this day. Almost eight years later, after possibly as many as half a million lives lost, it seems as though Assad has won the Syrian civil war. As of the 31st of December 2018, his forces control 62% of Syria, up from a low of just 30% in 2013. The theme of the Beacon podcast this term is voices those who have been left behind and forgotten. Who has been forgotten more than the Syrian people who peacefully protested against Assad's leadership in 2011, demanding democratic reforms and the release of political prisoners? The past eight years has seen the West fail to help them, even when their president attacked women and children with chemical weapons. Whether we should have acted differently in 2013 is now irrelevant, but the question that does need to be answered is how do we honour those protesters today? How do we ensure that the greatest conflict of our time does not end with an emboldened Assad, but with a transition to a new leader and a democratic regime? Or is this an impossible goal? Put simply, what can and should the West do now to support the people of Syria? My first guest today to help us answer this question is Dr. Lena Khatib, the head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. I began by asking her for an overview of what's happening on the ground in Syria at the moment. Has Assad won the Syrian civil war, or is there still a chance for the rebels to win? Well, the problem with the Syrian conflict is that it is so complicated that a lot of people find it uh, too difficult to really get their head around. And this makes people kind of find explanations that are a bit simplistic, rather appealing. Right. And sadly, the media don't help because the media uh, sometimes give the impression that uh, the regime of Bashar al-Assad has won the war or refer to the war in Syria as a civil war. Mm. So I'm picking on these two terms um, that, that you've highlighted in your question because they're important to critique. Right. Um, the first thing is the conflict is ongoing. Mm -hmm. What is happening is that it has transformed over the years. So the intensity um, goes up and down. And in fact, a lot of people assumed for example, that 2018 saw a reduction in violence in Syria because, as I said, the media have been kind of talking about the regime winning and uh, and things kind of quietening down. But the reality is there was more violence last year in Syria than, um, you know, any, any other time uh, right. before uh, that year. So violence is intensifying and the conflict is ongoing. But as I said, it's transforming. So in the beginning, it was pretty much about different rebel groups fighting the regime. Then, of course, we had ISIS come along and add to the to the situation. We had militias backed by Iran also entering the fight. Then we had a Russian intervention in 2015. 
What we need to remember is that although a lot of rebel groups have lost vis-à-vis uh, -vis the regime, uh, other rebel groups are still very much there and they are still fighting. Uh, jihadist groups are also there and fighting. Uh, ISIS has lost lots of territory, but it hasn't disappeared. The Assad regime's forces are still fighting. The militias backed by Iran are still there. Plus, you have the Russian campaign ongoing. So it is not over yet by any means. And as you can see, I'm talking about Iran and Russia also fighting. And that's not to mention the international anti-ISIS coalition led by the the United States that's also fighting um, ISIS and also Turkey backing certain groups and so we're really talking about not just a civil war it's a civil war plus it's a civil war that also is a proxy war between all these different external actors. Right. So that's why I'm saying notions like civil war can yeah. be a bit simplistic because yes it is a civil war but it's also an international one. Now, having a better understanding of what the situation is in Syria today, I wanted to ask Dr. Khatib how likely it is, in her view, that Syria will have a peaceful and democratic transition. Um, everything is possible in, uh, in, in international relations. Right. However, uh, less likely, unfortunately, as things stand, yes. Because in the beginning, we have to remind ourselves that in 2011, when the protests in Syria started that March, they were not violent protests. They yeah. were peaceful protests. They were part of the wider, you know, Arab Spring um, phenomenon. And it was only when the regime of Bashar al-Assad started targeting people with violence that eventually people took up weapons and external actors saw in this an opportunity for themselves and started arming the rebels. And that's when we started seeing jihadist groups emerge as well as moderate fighters emerge. And, you know, the rest is history. Um, so the principles that made people uh, protests are still very much there. If, if you ask uh, any opposition figure what they want in Syria, they will say they want the same principles. People ultimately want reform, they want democracy, they want dignity, they want just a decent way of living and, and the you know, absence of oppression. The problem is that these demands fell on deaf ears when it comes to the regime and the international community sadly, said all the right things in terms of Assad must go, we should support the Syrian people, etc., but didn't really couple this rhetoric with actual action. So these people who protested in 2011, whether they eventually took up arms or not, as long as they stuck by their principles, sadly found themselves eventually let down. So right now, funding for the moderate rebel groups has been cut by the United States, by the UK, by you know their international backers. Funding for civil society, sadly, is also now being cut by even you know European countries that had significant significantly contributed to that in the past. So when you are not supporting these people and they already proved that they're not able to overwhelm this regime on their own, how are you going to see these principles actually implemented? But that doesn't mean that the peace process is completely dead. Um, at the moment, I will say it is um, uh, frozen and that's because you need a key actor in the international community to push all the actors to sit around the table and negotiate. And in my view, 
looking at the trajectory of the conflict, I think the only actor that can do that is the United States. But both under the Obama administration and under the administration of Donald Trump, the United States has largely uh, taken a back seat when it comes to the Syrian conflict. Russia has used this as an opportunity to assert itself as the uh, most influential international actor in Syria. And because Russia sees that its actions there are um, gaining its results, uh, the regime is still in power, it's taking back more areas, there's no one in the international community that's really standing up to it. So it has no incentive to go and negotiate on Syria. Same with the regime. It has its patron Russia. Why should it compromise? So unless the United States decides to take the bold move of having the political will to end this uh, conflict, and the only way to end the conflict is through a political transition, we're not going to go very far, unfortunately. So it's not over yet. There is still that possibility. But we need political will to make it happen. Um, but, you know, if the United States decides to um, uh, do it and bring the different parties to the table, this will not necessarily result in democracy in Syria overnight, but it can be the beginning. And this is one thing that we need to think about, even with the Arab Spring at large. A lot of people are saying what a disappointment it was because we haven't seen democracy anywhere in the region except in Tunisia that is heading um, in, a, in a positive direction. Um, however, if you look back at history, no country achieved democracy overnight. So we shouldn't think that Syria is a hopeless case, you know, and, and just give up. I think we need to, as the international community, to keep trying on all levels and not let civil society down and not let the Syrian people down, because this is really the beginning um, of a long, long process. I noticed at this point that Dr. Khatib had used the phrase political will a few times, but not expressed exactly what she meant by that. So I asked her, if you were designing US policy, what would you do? For me, considering that Russia is now the key broker in Syria, whether anyone likes it or not, sadly, this is the reality. Russia has managed to assert itself because the rest of the world basically let it. I think the first step would be for the US to have a bilateral conversation with Russia on Syria. And if they have this bilateral conversation, then I think the UN already has the vehicle for pushing um, the peace talks forward. We have a Geneva, uh, you know, kind of process. We have a UN resolution 2254 uh, that, that lists what the different steps of the peace process will, you know, will and should be. So we're not starting from scratch, but I think it's this match that needs to be lit um, is, is basically that's what's missing. The problem, of course, with waiting for this match to be lit is that Donald Trump has made it clear that his policy in Syria isn't exactly what's been expressed here. It's for this reason that I wanted to ask Dr. Khatib what will happen if we sit back and do nothing, if there isn't the political will to pressure for the political settlement that we desire. I mean, unfortunately, the situation is getting worse. Uh, one thing that we've seen uh, in the war so far is the use of chemical weapons, for example. And this is not going to uh, end because each time chemical weapons have been used and all investigations that are credible show that it is the regime that has been using chemical weapons in this war. Um, 
sadly, we're likely to see more because, you know, they, they've gotten away with it. Uh, the maximum punishment was some missiles launched by uh, the Trump administration, but, but that was it. So sadly, we're going to see things like that, which means more human uh, humanitarian uh, catastrophes. Uh, we are going to see an increase um, in violence and uh, loss of livelihoods for even more people. And what this means also is uh, the rise of more grievances. So we have to remember that the grievances that drove people to um, protest against the regime in 2011 have not gone away. But over the years, there have been layers and layers of added grievances, you know, that are emerging. All these are not going to just disappear overnight, even if the regime declares victory and says that it has now taken back all areas of Syria. I don't think the people are just going to sit there quietly and take it because they've lost so much. And now there is... Um, uh, a lot of anger um, about the way people have been treated. And also the refugees that the, uh, you know, that fled as a result of this conflict, the regime largely does not want them back. And areas inside Syria that the regime is taking back, the regime is deliberately punishing by not uh, delivering services to them. Uh, it wants to keep them destitute in order to basically punish the people that rose against the regime. So you put all these factors together and you will see a society that maybe for a period of time, um, uh, you know, will appear calm to the outside world just because people are a bit tired. But I think all these all these things are eventually going to, you know, going to boil and the, 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 the situation will just head to another cycle of instability. Meanwhile, if no political process happens, uh, groups like ISIS are also going to find ways to regenerate, both because they want to capitalize on people's anger and also because um, for as long as the conflict uh, rages, you have a war economy that is going on in the background that is fueling these kinds of groups. So even though militarily they're not very visible, when it comes to uh, illegal economic activity, they're very much still there. And it's not just ISIS and jihadist groups, it's also these uh, pro-Iranian militias that are also engaging in war economy activities, as well as various warlords um, who are uh, with the regime, who are benefiting uh, from uh, the war economy, as well as, sadly, some rebel groups, because this is what happens in a war situation like this. Everybody wants to just profiteer. So you have a proliferation of profiteers that are also taking resources from the people. So I see both uh, political and economic and social uh, drivers for further instability. And of course, if the regime's in power, then groups like ISIS will want to show that they're credible by presenting themselves as um, oppositional forces to the regime, which means we're going to see insurgency activity, a bit like what we saw in Iraq after 2003. So that to me is not a recipe for stability or peace. So no one should be fooled by any kind of of relative calm that is only achieved by oppression from above, because this will only be short term. So ultimately, what we're talking about is instability that's, of course, going to spill over beyond Syria's borders. So we're going to enter a probably more dangerous cycle than what we've seen so far. So for anyone in the international community who thinks that the Syrian conflict is not our concern, they should think again. Having spoken to Dr. Lena Khatib, I wanted to hear another expert's view on what was happening in Syria. My next guest on today's podcast is Dr. Eugene Rogan, the head of the Middle East Centre at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. 
I began by asking him what chance he sees today for the Syrian rebels to win the civil war. I think for the people who rose in opposition to the Assad regime, the attempt to try and force him from power by armed struggle is now coming to an end. Right. So you see a situation in Syria in which the armed forces of the regime, with tremendous support from Russia and Iran, have been able to regain control over most of the geography of Syria. There remains one very important region around Idlib that stands as a concentration of opposition. I think the international community has watched with growing concern that there might be one last battle in Syria that would take a population of some two million with a large proportion of civilians and essentially lead to a kind of ethnic cleansing situation. It doesn't look like that's going to happen now. And it looks as though under international pressures that there will be a negotiated solution over Idlib which would leave the Assad regime in power and the country faced with the terrible questions of how to go about rebuilding their shattered cities and reintegrating their dispersed people. With half the people of Syria displaced from their homes and millions of them living abroad as refugees, the challenges that Syria faces after the conflict are going to be absolutely tremendous. And I think this is where the international community can really begin to play a constructive role in a way it hasn't right through the years of the war. I asked Dr. Rogan exactly what he meant by the international community's role in rebuilding Syria. Well, the first thing is to recognize that there are many international communities. Syria has been a crossroads of political ambitions for different regions and powers So there are states in the Arab world that supported factions in the Syrian conflict to try and advance their own political priorities. We've already mentioned Russia's intervention, Iran's intervention. And then, of course, you have the West. The United States and Europe have real concerns in Syria, but have not been influential players until the conflict to defeat ISIS drew American forces into Syria in a direct way partnering with Kurdish forces to try and defeat the caliphate in its Syrian and Iraqi landhold. So when we talk about what can the international community do now, I think we actually have a question of how might the international community cooperate over Syria? How might all these different components, the neighboring Arab regimes, Iran, Russia, Turkey, which is a bordering country with Syria, very influential, Europe, the United States, work together to try and help Syria reestablish a government in which its people can live in relative freedom and security and rebuild their shattered country. Where will the money come from? If you just look at the damage done to the major cities of Syria, you realize that the reconstruction bill is going to go into the hundreds of billions of dollars. This is a civil war that has been so totally destructive to the country that it will take years of concerted effort and cooperation by many parties that have not had an easy time working together. So, I mean, I think the first thing is to try and find the formula, quite possibly through the United Nations, that will allow for the flow of funding from a wide range of parties that might not otherwise sit at the table together. So will you get Saudis and Qataris and Turks and Russians and Iranians and Americans and Europeans around the same table? Probably not. But I think each of those countries has a very important role to play in financing, in providing the material, in providing the know-how, 
and in trying to create the security for the Syrian people themselves that will allow the country to rebuild and for people to return to Syria, to be reintegrated into Syria under a government led by Bashar al-Assad, who, for so many who have gone in exile or refugees, you know, is the biggest obstacle to their return to Syria. They, they, many of them suffered so much under this regime that they will never trust it again. How do we rebuild the confidence of the Syrian people that the Assad regime after the conflict will better provide for their security and for their political freedoms than it did before? And I think it's going to take a concerted effort by many different international players. It's not a homogenous international community by a long shot, but the need for all these players influential in Syria to begin to concert their efforts towards restoring Syria to statehood uh, is essential for the success of the project after this war. I was surprised to have heard Dr. Rogan express a view of the future of Syria that didn't involve getting rid of Assad. To be honest, when I was researching this podcast, that wasn't really something that I had considered. So I asked him, how can there possibly be a peaceful Syria under Assad? Will the tensions and divisions expressed after eight years of civil war not make that completely impossible? Well, you have to address these tensions yeah. if you hope to move on beyond them. And I think that the fears of Syrians of their own government are so well-founded. If I were you know, given the powers to assign tasks to the different parts of the international community, what I would love to see Europe do is intervene in the security system of Syria to reassure the Syrian people who return that the prisons of Syria will no longer become the torture chambers of the opposition. I think one of the fundamental points that needs to be addressed in reassuring Syrians that it's safe to go home even in a Syria ruled by Assad. And that is the reality of the situation. There is no force in place today that is going to topple Assad. Then you've got to close the prisons of Syria as political prisons. Obviously, if people are breaking the laws of Syria by such standards, crimes as theft and murder and rape, then the punishment of jail must be one which is carried out through a normal rule of law. But that's not what the prisons of Syria have been like. It's not why people have suffered. So prisons are places where people disappear, where unspeakable horrors are meted out to them. We know what happens in prisons because people who have worked in prisons have come to the international community with the pictures they've taken and the stories of what they have done, what they have seen. And we know from those who have survived these prisons that the Syria after this conflict can no longer host such institutions. I don't count on Russia or Iran providing the assurances that the Syrian people need that their state won't abuse them. I actually think it's a task that the Europeans are better suited to. And I can imagine a scenario in which Russia and Iran would say, fine, you want to look over the prisons? They're yours. But I think it's an absolutely essential step that could be taken to reassure the people that if they go back to Syria, they can resume their lives in their own country without their government victimizing them again. If we can't succeed in doing that, I don't think we can succeed in a project of rebuilding Syria. It's absolutely fundamental. And by the same token, it will require pressure from Syria's closer allies, Russia and Iran, that they will commit to pressuring the regime not to engage in such repressive practices, that 
the only way Syria can emerge from this conflict as a country of all of its people, again, will be by a new social contract in which there are no abuses. And I think here I would really use the best efforts of the international community to prevail on Russia and Iran to play that role, to pressure the government, to reassure wary, nervous, frightened, or ventful, angry, and furious citizens that in coming back to Syria, they won't face the torture chambers. And then you can hold the incentives of reconstruction, the rebuilding of towns and cities, the rebuilding of schools, the creation of jobs, and the creation of a better future for the Syrians who return, less for this generation than, let's say, for the generation coming into adulthood. For I think the ultimate... Conciliation will only come if the Syrian government can de demonstrate to its most skeptical citizens that there is the prospect of a better future at home in Syria, in a post-conflict Syria, with international guarantees, than the awful life they lead now as refugees in countries where they can't provide the education, they can't provide for the food needs, they don't have control over where they live for their families. There's got to be a package that provides those incentives and says, returning to Syria, you will be safe. You will have a job in rebuilding this country. And there will be jobs in construction, in civil engineering, and all the things it takes to rebuild the shattered cities of Syria. There will be jobs for Syrians. They should rebuild their own country. And that there will be schools for your children, hospitals for your sick, as part of that reconstruction project. And a revived country and economy connected to the international community that holds the prospect of a better future for all Syrians. That might be just enough to make people willing to bury their quite right demands for retributive justice or for revenge. But they won't get that, so let's see what we can give them to make a future that would be better for Syrians. This vision for a post-war Syria that Dr. Rogan was outlining was a positive one. An optimistic one, but one that seemed fundamentally realistic. So I wanted to know if it was possible. What would this reconstruction look like? I think the approach to Syria is not to be address all the problems of the country at once. Don't try and rebuild all the country at once. I think you need to demonstrate that the reconstruction project can work by working in an incremental fashion. I would recommend taking territories that are close to bordering countries like Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey where you know you got roads that'll allow you to bring in the cement and the iron and the bricks. And you could create clear lines of communication between safe havens and Syria to start rebuilding cities in south of Syria, bordering Jordan around Daraa, which was one of the opening sites of the Syrian uprising. Or looking from Lebanon around Zabadani or a whole host of Syrian towns that border the Turkish frontier. And if you were to start a process of reconstruction that gave safe guarantees to the people who returned there to build and move into these cities, that you were then relocating Syrians onto Syrian territory who recognized that they were coming under the government of Bashar al-Assad in Damascus, but were doing so in a protected way, that you could already begin to build confidence in this gradualist project and let's be honest here, it's not as though anyone's put aside $500 billion to rebuild Syria. The raising of funds to rebuild is going to take time as well. Gradualism is imposed on the situation. This may be a 10 to 20 year reconstruction project. But if you could start and demonstrate 
that cities could be rebuilt from neighboring territories, that people could return to them without facing threat or abuse by the state, and that confidence could be built, then I think you could move that process in a virtuous cycle inwards towards the inland cities of Syria. This is a hugely optimistic vision. I accept that. But what are you going to say as this conflict comes to the end and Bashar al-Assad is still in government? Are we going to accept that Syria will remain this destroyed country of fragmented cities, ashes and sackcloth? I think we have to actually come up with realizable visions that could address the situation and allow Syria to emerge again as a safe country in the region, a viable state in the region, not a home to wars and terrorism, but what it's always been, which is a sort of political heart of the Arab world. So to the extent that we can keep putting forward ideas of how that could be achieved, I think it's our duty to do so. And every time I have the opportunity to sit with political leaders in Europe, I take the opportunity to show them a way forward that is realizable, that could be done. When I began researching and writing this podcast, I was not expecting the answer to be as positive as the one that I received. I was expecting something much more pessimistic. This meant that I had to rewrite this conclusion. But I'm incredibly glad that I've had to do that. Eight years ago, an innocent 13-year-old boy named Hamza Al-Khatib, who didn't really care about politics but loved his pet homing pigeons, was tortured and murdered. He was only two years older than me. That should never have happened, and that can never happen again. I want to see a world where that doesn't happen again. A world where there are not dictators like Bashar al-Assad. A world where there is peace, a strong and prosperous Syria. Dr. Lina Khatib doesn't believe we can have the second without the first. But Dr. Eugene Rogan believes that we must prioritise the second over the first. I'd love to hear what you guys think. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm glad that I could air that debate on this podcast. I want to thank you for listening to this, and I want to thank Dr. Lena Khatib and Dr. Eugene Rogan for being on the podcast. It was incredibly kind and generous of them to give up their time to talk to me. So where does that leave us? The conflict in Syria is not over. It has not been lost and it has not been won. But what we've heard today is a vision for the future. How the centre of the Arab world can be rebuilt. How we can have a strong and prosperous Syria. I end this podcast on that positive note. And I hope that we can listen to this in one, two or three years time. And that we were right. You've been listening to Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. And I've been your host, Joe Davis. If you enjoyed this, I'd really appreciate if you shared it on your social media. Let me know what you think, or gave your answer to my question. If you're interested in international relations, I'd employ you to check out our society's Facebook page because we've always got some awesome events going on. Thank you very much for listening.